Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. This morning, um, I want us to consider what the psalmist says. Uh, he, he calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Or the prophet in, in Lamentations, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And this morning, in, in preparation for this, this study, really, that captures what we're going to do this morning. That we're going to, on the one hand, let's open God's word and behold his glory, and then let's see his steadfast love, his love for us. A saving relationship with Jesus Christ is the best possible relationship we can ever have. There's nothing more rich that I can offer to you this morning than a relationship with Jesus Christ. I found a quote from an old uh, Scottish pastor. His name was Samuel Rutherford, and he says this. I have a whole book of quotes from him. I'm sure everybody's interested to get their own copy. Come see me after. Uh, I'll get you that. Um, but he said, one of the many things he says is, um, he says this, Every day we may see some new thing in Christ. His love hath neither brim nor bottom. Let's translate that. His love has no top, no bottom. There's no end to it. God's love is sufficient for us in Christ every day. We cannot exhaust it. So this morning we're going to just look at one text, one passage, and examine God's love for us in Christ. Uh, we'll begin just, just with the illustration. Uh, as I was reading and studying, Paul, he, he has lots of questions in this section. Six questions he asks in like a, a rapid-fire succession, one right after the other. And I was thinking, like it feels like, like, a, like a barrage, or like what, what's a good way to describe this? And I settled on a blacksmith. And maybe you've seen those shows, that the challenge, you know, forge a, a knife out of ball bearings or something like that. Whatever those shows are, and you could get, they get the metal and they put it in the fire, and I don't know what they're doing, but it looks cool. And uh, so they, they take it out, and then they hit it with the hammer a bunch of times, and voila, you get this nice sculpture, art, or knife, or whatever it happens to be. In this section, I, it seems like Paul is using these questions to just hit point after point He's, he's driving one main point home, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. If God has saved you, you can be assured that your salvation will never be lost. So Paul is going to, he goes question by question, uh, he's like, he's hammering out for us, if you will, the doctrine of assurance, the doctrine of eternal security. Just how much does God love us? Let's go now to Romans 8 and follow along with me, beginning in verse 31. And you know, uh, guys in the back, I realized I didn't even put the main... Of all the scriptures I put in the slides, I didn't put the main one. Uh, so you just have to follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. Um, the TV is a good, a good blessing, but they'll never, uh, never outdo actually having a copy in your hand or on your iPad, or so just follow along with me. Um, here we go. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray as we seek the Lord to guide us this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Thank you for Christ. I pray that we would come to taste and see that you are good this morning. That we would come to know and treasure and enjoy your steadfast love that never ceases. Lord, open our eyes to the beauty and majesty of Christ and your love this morning. Lord, be with me to teach and to preach clearly and effectively, and Lord, you have to open and change hearts today. I cannot make that happen. I pray you would do so today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This morning, I want us to consider how much God loves us in Christ. That's the aim for this Really, it's this message, and, and there's still captures in the one to follow. This is all one big section. I choose this word consider because of what Paul says in the beginning of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? He is summarizing. He's trying to capture everything he said in chapter 8, really in verses chapters 1 through 8. He's boiling it all down to this. What then shall we say? So this morning, I want us to consider how much God loves us in Christ. And we see that just how it begins. What then shall we say to these things? Number one, here's how we can begin to consider how much God loves us. Number one, see this in verse 31, God is for us. God is for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. In the original Greek, this word that we are translating here is if, really functions like a because of or a since. We could read it this way. Because God is for us, who can be against us? Or since God is for us. Each one of these questions that we're going to look at has a horizontal component and a vertical component. And it lays out really right here. God is for us vertically, who can be against us horizontally? We need to make a note here. When we say God is for us, he was talking about in, in covenant terms, relationship terms. God's not for every single platform or person or position. We can't just open our Bibles and say, oh, God is for me and my platform and my political party or who can be against me. This, we're 
Something is specifically meant here. We don't get to verse 31 without everything Paul has laid out already. Namely, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, all the way back in verse 1. We don't get to this point without realizing that Christ Jesus was given to set us free from the penalty of the law. That the Holy Spirit was given to us to change our hearts that were dead in sin to now alive in Christ. We don't get to verse 31 without realizing that we've been adopted into God's family. He's given us his spirit. We don't get to this point without realizing God is making all things new. He's transforming us to be more like his son. And that his salvation for us is from eternity past to eternity future. Paul's covered all that already. So now he's getting down to the, to the meat. The, where does the rubber meet the road here? What then shall we say? One illustration, just to help in this, it comes from Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5 has this, this time when Joshua faces the commander of the Lord's army. And this, I just want to help clarify what I mean by God is for us. Now, uh, Joshua 5 verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his Sword, drawn sword in his hand, sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He's asking the command of the Lord, Are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? Who are you for? Verse 14. He, the commander, says, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the, Lord, the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So the, Joshua has this wrong thinking at first when he sees the commander of the Lord. Are you, are you for us, God, or are you for our enemies? And the commander of the Lord says, Hang on. I am the Lord. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Are you with me? So when... I make this point, God is for us. What we have to realize is God is for us in the sense that God is for his covenant people. That's letter A. God keeps covenant with his people. This is all of God's promises are applied to his covenant people. This is true for the whole Bible and for our text this morning. This word for, it, it functions like uh, he's on our behalf or for the sake of his people. There's all sorts of examples of God giving covenant in the Old Testament. Just, we're just going to consider a few of these. One, for one, God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God, God makes a covenant with Abraham and with the people of Israel. And I want you to see this in Deuteronomy 7, that this covenant gets repeated by Moses. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 12. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out, out with a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord, your God, will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. You see, when we say God is for us, God is in a covenant relationship with his people. That he intends, because he is loving, because he is faithful, to keep a covenant relationship with us. We don't deserve that relationship. We don't deserve his love. It is simply because God loves us, and that was true of Israel in the Old Testament. But what about when Israel breaks the covenant through idolatry and through rebellion? There's exile that happens. Israel is, is taken into captivity. Here's what we need to remember. God will always uphold his own glory and will always do what is best for his people, even if that means trials and correction. But it gets better. Because the, the promises that God makes in the Old Testament, he promises to make a new covenant. A new covenant that comes with a new heart. That is a genuine spiritual transformation from the inside out. The covenant anticipated in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And you might want to just jot this down. We're not going to go there this morning, but Hebrews 8, 6-13 unpacks how does Christ fulfill this new covenant for us that was anticipated in the Old Testament? Jesus has secured a new covenant for us by his own blood. And he says that, if you remember when Jesus was instituting the Lord's table, Luke twenty two twenty, this cup is the, new co the blood of the new covenant. Same thing in Matthew 26. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus for us secures a new covenant for us. Now, how can we be included in this covenant relationship? We only get there through Jesus Christ and through his blood. And because Jesus draws us into relationship with him, then and only then can we say, God is for us. When we are faithless, God is faithful. He will not deny himself, and God never lies. Letter B, opposition is real, but never victorious. What do, we do? what do we do with this truth? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, when we first hear that, we think, well, nothing. And that's true. Ultimately, nothing can be against us, but in a sense, everything can be against us. Uh, anyone and everything. As I was preparing uh, my car, I had some car trouble this week. And I was thinking about this. Well, my car is against me this week. At least it feels that way. Got to go get it fixed. I thought you said, God, who can be against us? Right now, my car is getting fixed. What do you mean? There is opposition that is real that we will face. But what is meant here is ultimately nothing will be against us. Never victorious. There is opposition to God around us, 
and even within us, because sin still remains in us. We could describe it in this, this way of internal and external conflict. We face opposition to God from sin that remains in us, spiritual forces, the work of Satan, other people, relationships, even those closest to us. But none of these are greater than God himself. Because God is the one who has accomplished salvation for us. And if nothing is greater than God, then nothing can ultimately do us harm or threaten our salvation, our eternal security. So when we feel afraid, we can trust that God is for us, that he loves us, that he always has our good in mind. Ultimately, nothing can touch the hope that we have in Christ. We need to just take these truths and walk by faith in them. Here, I want to give two illustrations of this, this verse 31. God is for us. Who can be against us? The first comes from the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6. And this is when the king of Syria sends out an army to capture Elisha. Uh, 2 Kings 6, verse 15 says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was, around, was all around the city, surrounded by the army of the king of Syria. The servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, Elisha says, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Horizontally, army of Syria surrounded. Vertically, the army of the Lord, way greater than the army of Syria. God is for us. Who can be against us? Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Horizontal, opposition, reviling, persecuting. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Vertical, your reward is great in heaven. Think about what John says in 1 John. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. These illustrations, they help us to see that the horizontal opposition to the people of God is trumped by the vertical greatness and power of God. There is no one greater, stronger, or more powerful than God. There's none wiser than God. We can be confident that God is for us, not because of anything good in us, but because God is so good because God is for us because of Jesus Christ and his love. This leads us really to our second point. Not only is God for us, but number two, God is a gracious giver. We see this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we know that nothing is greater than God, verse 31, but verse 32 is showing us how much grace will God show us? Just how much does God really love us? 
Answer, letter A, <laughs> he's given us his son. This, this phrase here, did not spare. Uh, it, it means that he showed no tenderness. God did not refrain from sending his son. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, born to suffer and be crucified at the hands of sinful men. Within the Trinity, there's perfect fellowship, perfect love and communion, perfect holiness, boundless glory. But the Father sent the Son, and the Son left heaven willingly. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says. He humbled himself to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. God has chosen to give his Son. Why? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Father would send the Son. He would give him up because he's loving. For whom was the Son given? Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will, there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus came willingly to suffer in our place. He continues, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then verse 19, there's division among him, among the Jews because of these words. Jesus claiming to be God, claiming to say, I came because the Father sent me. I know what I'm doing. And there's division. And perhaps there's division even this morning. Of Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your good shepherd? Do you follow him? Jesus continues, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We're assured, we're kept by the power of God. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, God, in sending the Son, has given to us the best possible gift that he could ever give. There is no treasure in all of heaven or earth that could ever compare to the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. He sent his Son to suffer, to be pierced, to be nailed to a cross, to carry the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. His sheep, those who will follow him, those who will hear his voice, who will turn from their sin and trust in him. And if that's you, let Jesus' words comfort you. No one will snatch you out of his hand. God has given us his son and let her be. He gives us all that we truly need. The argument Paul uses is from lesser to greater. If God's already given the best for us in Christ, 
What about our other needs? Paul is making the case that God, in his loving grace towards us, will freely give us all we need. Here's an illustration. Um, perhaps you've been to the jewelry store. I uh, uh, was there recently, so this is fresh in my mind. Uh, fresh example. Going to the jewelry store, you're going to go buy uh, some jewelry. Maybe a ring or something else. Um, you go, you, if you purchase that ring, you don't have to ask for the box. That just came. That just was, here you go. Like that, I, there's no, you don't have to ask for the box. You don't have to ask for, here's some cleaning stuff to wash it off. <laughs> I don't know. Here's a pen with our name on it. Here's a bag. But wait, there's more. If you're given the best, these other things are, by comparison, are, they're nothing. The box is nothing compared to the ring inside. And so Christ, compared to what we need, God is ready to give us all that we need. He's already given us his best. This is true for our physical needs, our, our temporal needs, our spiritual needs. God's ready to give us what we need because he's gracious. Because he loves us. He, he loves us as his own children. He's adopted us into his family. We've, we've covered that already in chapter 8. God loves us. Jesus says it this way in uh, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We don't have to worry. And when I say truly needs, or the, the phrase here, graciously give us all things. Second uh, Peter 1, 3, he, he, he says it this way. Peter says that God and his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So this all things that, that God promises to give us, it's for our good, for our, our, our true needs, for all things pertaining to life, temporal, physical needs, and godliness, our spiritual needs. We can trust that because God loves us in Christ, we will have what we need. And this leads us really to our third point. Not only is God for us, not only is God, does he graciously give to us, but number three, God is our justifier. God is our justifier. And this is in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Letter A, many are ready to accuse us. We know we have you know, opposition. There's the world around us, culture, the flesh, our own sinfulness within, and, and Satan. The world has fallen in a state that is ready to charge God's people of wrong. Our own hearts can be quick to doubt and condemn, we can condemn ourselves because of remaining sin. Satan in Revelation is called the accuser of the brothers, who tries to bring up all our sinfulness and shortcomings before God. So we know that we face a world and, and a reality that is ready to be against God, to accuse us. We can take Paul as an example. In Acts 19, Paul was accused of trying to start riots for preaching the gospel in Ephesus. 
And Demetrius, the, the city clerk, says, hey, listen, uh, if, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have any complaint against anyone, the courts are open, they're proconsuls, let them bring charges. They were ready to charge Paul in Ephesus for uh, causing a disturbance for preaching the gospel. The Jews were against Paul because he preached the gospel, and they made up this, this just felonious charge, this, this fake charge of defiling the temple in Acts 23. The, the Roman Tribune summarizes what happens this way. Acts 23, 28, desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, that's Paul, I brought him down to their council and found he had, was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. Paul testifies on his own behalf, Acts 26, uh, before King Agrippa, the same, he's being charged by the Jews, just to summarize in verse 6, I stand here, Paul says, I stand here now on trial, because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by the Jews. So temporally, horizontally, yeah, there are many ready to accuse us. They accuse Paul. We will face opposition. But, letter B, God is ready to forgive He's ready to forgive. This language in verse 33 and 34 is, is legal terminology, dealing with law, legal matters. This word charge means to call to account, to accuse, to arraign. I had to look that word up this week. Uh, it, it means like dealing in a criminal court. Um, condemn means to pronounce sentence against or to find guilty. So yeah, there are those who would be who would desire to bring a charge against God's elect, God's people, God's sheep. But we must look at this in light of the courtroom, not on earth, but the courtroom of heaven. Because God is the one who justifies us. So consider this scene. God the righteous judge, whose holiness and righteousness knows no limit. When we stand before this God, who made us, to whom we are accountable. The Lord holds up his law, holds up his own glory and compares us and we find that we don't measure up, not one of us. No one passes the standard. No one upholds God's law perfectly. What then? The only one who could rightly accuse us, who could rightly charge us, is God. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. That sentence, that would get carried out. That's going to that's gonna clear. We're all guilty before God. We have no defense on our own. Our righteousness, our good works, cannot measure up to God's perfection. So what hope do we have? Here's where... Enter Jesus Christ into the courtroom of heaven. Amen for that? Christ himself stands on our behalf and pleads his blood. His blood that was shed for sinners. And that God the Father would look upon the perfect righteousness of the Son, his death on the cross, and say, covered. Our sin 
covered. Our law-breaking covered through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to confess, God is right. I am a sinner. I don't measure up. I must plead the blood, and so must you. We must trust, I must trust in the sufficiency of another. And that person must be Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 4, 24 and 25. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. What happened to Jesus? Verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses. That is, he was put to death, put to the cross for our trespasses, our sin, and raised from the dead for our justification. That God the Father can look and declare to you and I this morning, when we trust in him, forgiven, righteous, your sin covered, your debt paid in full through Jesus Christ. That's what that word justification means, just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. The moment we call upon Christ to save us, by faith, God declares us righteous, forgiven. So what happens when we feel guilty or unforgiven or unloved? Let us remember that God is the one who justifies us. Take that burden off of yourself and look to Jesus. God is so ready to forgive. And this leads us to our fourth point. Verse 34, Christ is our Savior. Christ is our Savior. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is our Savior, and letter A, I want you to know this and take, take this to heart. Christ is all-sufficient. Letter A, the death of Christ is powerful enough to defeat sin, and Jesus' resurrection is powerful enough to defeat death. This is the gospel that we proclaim and we believe. Jesus died on the cross for all who will turn from their sin and trust in him. Jesus is all sufficient. That is his death and his resurrection. What Paul says, he's the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. Uh, listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, Christ is righteous, for the unrighteous, that's you and me. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That God would die in our place, that we can be with him. Who's to condemn us? Christ Jesus already died. What charge is going to stick? Jesus already raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, I'd like you to turn there with me. Isaiah 53, it's a longer section. I want you to see this. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Isaiah 53, Old Testament, 
preparing for the coming Messiah. Isaiah prophesies this, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see, excuse me, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, Jesus is all-sufficient. His death, because he had no sin, is able to cover our sin. He's fully God. He's able to make a way for us to be forgiven. He's able to perfectly obey God's law when we could not. Jesus is fully human. His death can be applied to us because we're human. There's no other sufficient sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus is enough for us. The good news gets even better. Jesus was raised from the dead. What better hope can we have this morning? What more clear picture can we have of the love of God for us? That Jesus would suffer or die in our place. Death could not contain Christ. The grave was not strong enough. And even clearer a picture of God's love from Romans 5. You can turn there if you want to. Romans 5, 8 through 11. It's not that we deserve to be saved. It's not that we deserve Christ to die for us. But Paul says that we were enemies of God when Jesus died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received reconciliation. Jesus died for us and was raised for us simply because he loves us, not because we deserve to be loved or saved. Letter B, not only is Jesus all-sufficient, but he is ever-present. Jesus is ever-present. And we see that in the, the second half of verse 34, that he is at the right hand of God, and he is indeed interceding for us. This means that Christ is at the highest place. He's at the throne of heaven. He is before the Father and always ready to provide for us. When we sin... Christ is right there at the throne of grace to intercede, to step in the middle of. He's going to present his blood on our behalf. Christ is ready to give us the grace and the help that we need to trust him and obey him and to tell others about him. Jesus will intercede for us. He will stand in our behalf. So when we sin... First John says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. He's right there. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 7. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead. We're not on our own. We don't have to feel that we're alone. Jesus will intercede for us. This is the best news that I have for sinners like myself. God loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, you're not alone. Do you know this God? Do you know this Savior? Have you trusted in him today? I pray that we would all see and know how much God loves us. And then that would cause us to love him more, that we would follow him more, that we would worship him more. Not to earn his love, but because he loves us. So Tim Keller, he says it this way, God loves us simply because of his choice, not because of anything in us, parentheses, he, he has, which may change, we may change, nor anything around us, which may change. God loves us because he loves us. How good is he? Amen? Here's our summary. God's love for us in Christ. We have a God who is for us, he is, who is a gracious giver, who is our justifier, and who is our savior. So when we come to application, we, we have some questions to think about before we get to the ones on the slide. Does God really love? Does he really, is he really loving? Perhaps you're here and you've experienced suffering and trial and hardship and you're tempted to think, I don't even know if God is loving because I've experienced such pain. Or maybe you're questioning God's love. Does God, can he really love me? Doesn't he know that I'm a sinner, that I'm, I'm so wretched? Could God really love me? And the answer to these is the gospel. 
It's the good news. You've experienced great suffering. I, I can't even begin to imagine the suffering that, that you've experienced in this room. And I know it's easy to doubt that God could ever be loving, but we cannot judge God based on our own standard of love. We must consider God's standard of love, and that's in the gospel, that God would love us and send his son for us. And if you're questioning, could God really love me? The answer is the same. He sent his son to die on the cross in, in your place, in my place, even though I'm a sinner. Perhaps you're here and you know that God loves you. And you're wondering, what's your next step? The next step is to love others like Jesus has loved you. And we start right here in our church, right here in our families, to show the love of Christ, that he's loved us first. That's what the question on the slide, because God is for me in Christ, my next step is. And we're gonna, we'll go over these in small group later this week or this afternoon. Have you received the gift of God's love? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ today? And if you have, the promise from Scripture is God is for us. God is for you. We don't have to be afraid. We can trust in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your steadfast love. And we just pray, I pray with the psalmist this morning, let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Father, I pray that you would open our, our hearts this morning to the gospel, that we would know with full assurance that we are saved, that we would know that you love us because of the gospel, not because of anything in us, but because you are so free to show your love. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die on the cross in our place, to be raised from the dead and to intercede on our behalf. Father, I pray that we would know your love and that we would love you more because you are so good and all that you do is good. We praise you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.